this episode, Socrates explains his God-given mission to troll the city of Athens and why you'd have to be really stupid not to know that you're a moron. This is Good in Theory. I'm Cliff Mark. Today, we're starting a multi-part series on Plato's Apology of Socrates. This book is based on an actual historical trial where Socrates, the granddaddy of Western philosophy, gets sentenced to death for impiety and corrupting the youth. I'm going to take you through the book step by step, but before we jump into it, I want to spend a few minutes explaining who Socrates is and why I think the Apology is such a good place to start a podcast about political theory. Socrates was a philosopher who lived in ancient Athens. And in addition to kickstarting political philosophy in Greece, he also kind of originated the whole philosopher-as-vagrant look. He didn't cut his hair, he didn't change his clothes very often, he walked around barefoot through the town, and also he was ugly. People would make fun of him for his big bulgy eyes, for his fish-like lips, and for his upturned nose. And Socrates was always broke. This is because, in Athens, even more than today, being a philosopher was not what you would call a job. There were no universities, Socrates never got paid for lessons, and he never published any books. For him... Being a philosopher just meant having deep talks. If you've ever heard of the Socratic method, this is it. You raise some topic, you state an opinion, and you engage in a little question and answer. You find contradictions, you try new opinions, you basically talk it out. Ideally, everyone moves together closer to the truth. The Socratic method is philosophy by conversation. And that's what Socrates did every day, in the marketplace, in the streets, at parties. And since normal Athenian men usually spent their time working for a living or getting involved in politics and public life, this whole lifestyle made Socrates kind of a weirdo, a town eccentric. But in spite of that, Socrates was also a star. He had a large and devoted following of fans, Young men in Athens would come down to the marketplace, and even if they didn't have a chance to talk to Socrates themselves, they would stick around and listen to him talk to other people. They'd follow him around, they'd copy the way he talked, and they'd try to sleep with him. They even wrote fan fiction about him. And at one point, one of the most famous playwrights in all of Athens stages a play about Socrates. It's a comedy, it makes fun of him. But it does mean that everybody knows who Socrates is. And he just carried on as always, talking philosophy every day with whoever wanted to talk to him. He carried it on, anyway, until he was 70 years old, and one day he gets hauled into court and charged with impiety and corrupting the youth and sentenced to death by drinking hemlock, which is a kind of natural nerve agent. The Apology, the book that we're reading today, is Plato's dramatic retelling of the speech that Socrates gave in his own defense at his trial. The book is not called Apology because Socrates is saying sorry. He is very much not sorry. The word apology or apologia is 
just the ancient Greek word for defense speech, as in the speech that you give in court in your own defense. Also, just note that this book is not supposed to be a history. It's not an exact transcript of what Socrates said on the day. It's more like a movie that is based on a true story. But whatever the historical accuracy of Plato's book, he takes a great headline, intellectual teen idol sentenced to death for corrupting fans, and he elevates it to a civilization-level smash hit. And he does that by turning it into this deep meditation on the relationship between politics and philosophy and on issues of censorship and free speech and, in general, just the ethics and psychology of making people shut up. So people are always coming back to this story when they want to talk about these issues. And there is a super basic, simplified, morality tale version of the story of Socrates' trial that will allow you to understand the vast majority of references you will hear to it in your life. And it goes like this. Socrates is a virtuous, wise, and innocent man of integrity who is unjustly persecuted and who courageously stands up to his persecutors. He becomes a martyr of philosophy. On the other hand, Athens is irrational, emotional, intolerant, violent, and 100% the asshole in the entire interaction. And the moral of the story, this changes a bit depending on who's telling the story, but the moral of the story is usually something like freedom of thought and freedom of expression is really important, and when you try to censor unpopular opinions... You're being like Athens, and you're probably going to wind up killing Socrates. So when you tell it that way, you have a neat morality tale. Perfect victim, perfect villain, nice little lesson. However, I don't want to tell you that version of the story. First of all, from a theoretical point of view, most morality tales are boring. You don't need me to tell you that it's wrong to kill innocent philosophers. Second of all, the thing about telling the black-and-white morality tale version of this is that it becomes completely irrelevant to real life. I think the questions of free expression and censorship and what I call the ethics and psychology of shutting people up, I think these are live questions. I think that in the early 21st century, we have lived through a veritable golden age of telling each other to shut up. We do it over hate speech, explicit song lyrics, ambiguous song lyrics, dirty movies, offensive tweets, terrorist propaganda, video games, you name it. Someone else is saying, you shouldn't be allowed to say that. Now, it is true that nobody's asking for state-administered hemlock executions, but depending on the context, people are trying to shut each other up by, by having each other thrown in prison, kicked off social media, fired from their job, harassed on Twitter, publicly shamed, and so on and so on. The modes of shutting people up are many. But for all the fights that I've seen over free speech and censorship, I've never once seen someone trying to punish an innocent senior citizen for doing philosophy. So if that's all that's going on in Plato's Apology, then it probably doesn't have much to teach us today. But in my opinion, there is a lot more to it, and it can teach us something about what's going on today. 
I'm not saying that getting suspended from YouTube is the same as being executed by the Athenian state. But I am saying that when I dig a little deeper into Socrates' story, I see a lot of things that look familiar. I see arguments and sentiments and even political circumstances that I see popping up in arguments over the same issues today. This version of the story is going to take a little while to tell. We're going to spend two episodes directly on the text of the Apology. We're going to get to know Socrates, his defense strategy, and essentially look at the whole issue from the side of the person who feels they are unjustly being silenced by a bunch of oversensitive idiots. Then we're going to spend two more episodes going a bit beyond the text, which only includes the defense, to find out why Athens did it. Athens was one of the most liberal, philosophy-loving places in the ancient world, so it's worth asking, what were the circumstances that made them think that it was safer to kill a 70-year-old man rather than let him carry on doing philosophy? So let's start with the text. The Apology is a courtroom drama, but Athenian courts were very different from ours. Think of it as a kind of rowdy people's court. There are no professional lawyers. The prosecution is just a citizen who wanted to bring a charge against another citizen. And the accused has to defend themselves. And there was no judge to interpret and apply the law. That was up to the jury, which instead of being 12 complete strangers, carefully vetted for impartiality and lack of bias, was hundreds of people. In Socrates' trial, the jury was 501 randomly selected fellow citizens. And this kind of made it more personal, because his friends, his enemies, his rivals would be in the crowd. Plus, he's a celebrity, so everyone in town already has an idea of what he's all about. He's very much being tried in the court of public opinion. Plus, there's just a bunch of people who came as spectators to watch this trial. And the crowd doesn't keep quiet. They would laugh and cheer and boo at the things people said on stage. Socrates has to tell them more than once during the trial to quiet down. Athenian trials start with the prosecution. So there are speeches from Socrates' accusers. There are three of them. They give up and give speeches, but those are excluded from the text. The book starts when Socrates stands up to defend himself. So I'm going to paraphrase his speech. I'll be talking as Socrates and... I'm going to stop every so often just to explain what was going on. Picture Socrates, 70 years old, ugly, unkempt. He walks out onto a low stage under a portico in front of this big, rowdy crowd, and he says... (laughs) Men of Athens, I don't know about you guys, But I really enjoyed those speeches. My accusers were incredibly persuasive. I think that I would convict myself if anything they said was true. But it was all lies. And of all the lies that they just told you, I think my favorite was when they told you that I was a dangerous public speaker. That I was going to come up here and put you all under the spell of my rhetorical black magic. That's ridiculous. I've never even been in court before. I don't know the fancy lingo that they use. I don't speak in public. 
I'm just going to tell you the plain truth, like I always do, and you can decide what the just thing to do is. But before I even address my present-day accusers, I have to raise the topic of my old accusers. Because the fact of the matter is, people who don't like me have been spreading rumors about me since before some of you were born. You've all probably heard from somewhere that I am a dangerous man because I study things in the sky and below the ground, and that I know the art of making weak arguments seem stronger, and that I teach young men to do the same. Now, it is difficult to say where rumors begin. Unless we mention Aristophanes, you all remember his play about me, The Clouds. And I will tell you today that I fully confess that the character called Socrates in the play is guilty of the things I just said. But why citizens of Athens? Do you know how comedy works? Did you think this play was real? Let's just settle this. If anyone here has ever heard me talking about the things in the sky or below the ground or anything like that, tell everyone else. And if I have ever collected a single drachma from any of you for philosophy lessons or rhetoric lessons, tell the audience. Nobody. That's because these are just rumors that have been repeated for years and somehow people have started to believe. And now my accusers decide that they want to take me down and they make up an official accusation based on rumors that are based on what a character in a play did over 20 years ago, which is... Wow. Now that part of the dialogue is pretty straightforward, but I want to say something about the nature of the rumors against Socrates and the playwright Aristophanes. So Socrates complains that people are spreading rumors that he studies things in the sky and underneath the ground, and then he makes the weak argument seem stronger. And this may sound a little mysterious if you don't know what he's talking about, but actually these are references to two kinds of intellectuals that existed in Athens. The first are the natural philosophers. Natural philosophers are what we would call scientists. They study the cosmos, they study nature, they come up with theories about how it all works. These guys, they sometimes get into trouble because, as you know, scientist types tend to poke their pointy eggheads where they don't belong, and they get involved in some impious or unethical stuff. Think of mad scientists, Dr. Frankenstein, Dr. Moreau, Galileo, that kind of guy. They are the ones who are studying things in the sky and below the earth, as in investigating the underworld. The other kind of shady intellectual is the sophist. These are the guys who make the weaker argument seem stronger. In Athens, sophists were teachers of rhetoric, so they would travel from town to town and they would charge a lot of money to anyone who could afford it to give lessons in public speaking. Rhetoric and public speaking were key skills, especially in a place like Athens, because it's a democracy. If you want to get your way politically, 
you have to stand up in the assembly and convince your fellow citizens. Also, if you ever wind up in court, you're going to have to speak on your own behalf. And if you are an ambitious young Athenian on the make, you're probably going to wind up in court at some point. So rhetoric was a key part of the posh Athenians' education, and pretty much anyone who could afford it would take lessons in it. But there was also sometimes a backlash against the sophists because rhetoric is a suspicious skill. If someone is really good at public speaking, at persuasive speaking, they might be able to manipulate people and make them believe things that aren't true at all. They make weak arguments seem stronger. So Athenians were suspicious of sophists in the same way that some people today are suspicious of really slick lawyers or demagogues. Now Aristophanes, he is one of the top comic playwrights in Athens. He writes these really broad comedies that are really silly and pretty funny. And so he writes one about Socrates. And the character that he writes for Socrates is a mashup of these two kinds of characters. As a natural philosopher, he's up in the sky investigating what thunder is, which turns out to be cloud farts. And as a sophist, he teaches his students how to make arguments for the most immoral things, like beating up their own parents and taking their money. So the Socrates in Aristophanes' play is actually guilty of the things that Socrates is being accused of at his trial. But the play is a really broad farce. Aristophanes' style is about the same level of realism as a Saturday Night Live sketch. He just takes a couple of characteristics of the characters and exaggerates them till they're really silly and funny. However, the charges have somehow come back to be a real thing in Socrates' trial. So it's first as farce, then as tragedy. And Socrates is just having a bit of fun pointing out how ridiculous that is. So in the first section of his defense speech, he's essentially saying that all the charges against him are just based on rumors from his haters. And now in the section I'm about to read, he's going to explain why the haters hate him so much. <laughs> Men of the jury, I'm sure some of you are thinking that if I really didn't do any of these things, where did the rumors come from? Could thousands of Athenians really be wrong? Who would lie about stuff like this? I'll tell you. The reason that people in this town are so mad at me that they want to have me killed is that I'm wiser than they are. I'm not bragging. The oracle said it. My friend Carafon, you all know him, one time he went down to the oracle at Delphi and he asked, is there any man in Athens wiser than Socrates? And the oracle said, no. I was surprised. I have never thought of myself as wise. And so I assumed this oracle was kind of a riddle. And I decided that I would just go find someone wiser than me, and then I could prove that the oracle was wrong. And that's how it all started. The first guy I talked to, I don't want to mention any names, but you know who he is, a prominent politician who many people think is wise, including himself. 
I walk up to him, we chat for a while, I ask him some questions, and you know what I discover? He's actually not very smart. He was confused and contradicting himself after just a couple minutes of questions. And when I pointed that out to him, he started to dislike me. And I thought to myself, maybe I am smarter than this guy. I mean, neither of us know anything, but at least I'm aware of it. This guy thinks he's a genius. I tried again with another guy who was supposed to be even smarter than the first, and then another. And after the politicians, I talked to the poets and the craftsmen, and basically, I talked to everyone in this town with any reputation for wisdom at all. And I know this sounds extreme, but an oracle is an oracle, am I right? That's a command from God. And you know what I learned over decades of talking to all these citizens and foreigners that I could find in the Agora? Everybody is dumb. But the dumbest guys, the dumbest guys are always the ones with a big reputation for knowledge. Politicians, poets, craftsmen, whoever, yes, they know one thing really well. The trouble is that they somehow convince themselves that they know everything really well. So when you ask them something else, they have a ton of confidence, but they have no clue what they're talking about. And that's what the oracle meant, that I, Socrates, am wiser than everyone else because I'm the only one who isn't under this false impression that I know everything. I know I know nothing. And wisdom is just recognizing how worthless and flawed human knowledge actually is. I'm not hustling your kids for rhetoric lessons or teaching them any weird theories about the cosmos. To help the oracle, I just talk to people who I think are wise, and if I find out that they're not, I point it out to them. And unfortunately, this has made me somewhat unpopular. It's also why they accuse me of corrupting the youth. A lot of young men have seen firsthand how easy it is to own the know-it-alls. And they sometimes like to try it themselves. And when they do, whoever they embarrass winds up shaking their fist and saying, Socrates has been corrupting the youth again. But if you ask them how I corrupt the youth, they'll just go to the same stupid cliches that Aristophanes put in his play, which apparently a lot of you believe. I'm going to come back to Socrates' whole God-given mission to show people how stupid they are. But for now, I just want to talk for a little while about Socrates' so-called ignorance. The only thing that I know is that I know nothing is one of the top catchphrases in all of philosophy. But it's also a bit weird because Socrates is obviously very smart. He's out on the street owning Athens' best and brightest. So how can he say that he knows nothing? To clarify that, let's outline two different reactions to learning something. One is that Learning a bunch of new stuff actually makes you more modest because one of the things that you learn is how little you actually know. So take the example of an academic career. When you graduate from your undergraduate exams and you absolutely ace them, that is your last best chance to feel like you really know it all. 
But if, God forbid, you get involved in some kind of PhD program, and you pick a tiny little topic to focus on, and you just decide you are going to be the person who knows everything about that, and you start studying it, and you find out all the different lines of argument and research that other people have done before, all the things about the topic that you didn't even know that you didn't know before, you should get a really deep sense of how little you know. Because you're going to feel humbled just by what you don't know about your own topic. So what about all the things that you didn't spend several years studying on? Unless you're some kind of egomaniac, that kind of focused study ought to humble you. And it's not just academics. I've heard people from all fields say this. Comedians, writers, actors, people in trades. The more they learn about their craft, often the more they realize there is to learn. Socrates is ignorant like that. He's read all the big books going around at the time. He's had all the common philosophical conversations thousands of times with different people. So he knows all the weaknesses and all the contradictions inherent in the opinions people usually have about stuff. He knows that any answer he gives can be critiqued. So he knows the limits of his knowledge, and that's what he means when he says, I know nothing. He doesn't know anything for sure. But that sense of his own ignorance, that also keeps him keen. He's an optimist. That's why he's willing to start any of these conversations over again with someone new, because maybe it'll go in a different direction and he'll pick up a new piece of the puzzle. Another possible reaction to learning stuff is that you learn something really well. You compare yourself to other people. You think of what you learned and you think, God, I am smart. Then you somehow assume that being smart is a quality of character instead of the result of very focused study. And you start to think, well, since you're smart in that one thing, you must be smart in everything. And that's what Socrates thinks that the know-it-alls of Athens are doing. That's why he says that the dumbest guys in town are always the ones who are smart in one thing. And I think about this point all the time. I think about it when I hear a scientist telling people what to think about religion. I think about it when a Hollywood actor starts giving out health advice. Or, and this happens more than you think, when a psychologist starts telling people what to think about politics. So when something like that happens, remember Socrates' point, which is that expertise in one field doesn't give you expertise in any other field. In fact, it is just as likely to strip you of the intellectual modesty that you would need to actually learn something new. To put it differently, you have to be very stupid not to know that you're a moron. Okay, the last bit of the book that I want to paraphrase today is a dialogue between Socrates and one of his accusers. He calls up his accuser and questions him. It's not a very common thing to do in an Athenian trial, but it's very much Socrates' style, so that's what he does. <laughs> Melodus officially accuses me of corrupting the young and not believing in the gods in whom the city believes, but in other new spiritual things. Fine. I accuse Melodus of starting frivolous court cases about things that he doesn't know anything about. And I'm going to prove it in my usual manner. Melodus, come over here. I've got a few questions about your accusation. 
I know that you think it's very important that the young men of Athens turn out as well as possible. And I know that you think you've discovered that I corrupt them. But tell me, in your opinion, who improves the young men? The laws, Socrates. That's not what I asked. What person improves the Melitus? Who knows all about the laws in the first place? Well, the jurymen to start with. All of them? Wow. What about the audience? What about the members of the council? What about the Athenian assembly? Yes, Socrates, you know very well that we all improve young men, and you are corrupting them. Fine. You think that every citizen in Athens improves young men, but I alone corrupt them. But let me ask you this, Melodis. How do you raise a horse? Because if you want to improve your horse, would you just leave it out on the street so any Athenian who happens to walk by can have a go at training it? Isn't the best way to improve horses to entrust them to specialized horse breeders who actually have experience with them? And isn't the same true of educating boys? We all know that it is, no matter what you say now. And I hope that you and the audience have heard how ridiculous Melodus is being. Melodus, I'll ask you this. Do you think that it's better to live among good fellow citizens or bad fellow citizens? Good ones, Socrates. And bad people, Melodus, they have a tendency of harming the people around them, right? This is why we call them bad. Yes, Socrates, obviously. Then let me ask you this. Can you imagine any person who would want to be harmed by his associates? Of course not, Socrates. Get to the point. Well, that is the point, Melodus. You said that corrupting people makes people worse, and that worse people are more likely to harm those around them. And you admit that nobody wants to be harmed by their associates. But if that's all true, why would I corrupt anyone? It would just make them more likely to harm me. And that doesn't make any sense. Gentlemen of the jury, Melodus is already contradicting himself. He's clearly not spent any time even thinking about how education works. Socrates goes on to question Melodus about the impiety charge, and it's basically the same style. He trips Melodus up on some definitions of atheism and spirits, and he catches him in a logic trap. Then he turns to the audience and tells them that Melodus is obviously an idiot, and the only reason anyone in the jury would vote to convict him is because of slander and envy. And there's quite a bit more to the dialogue, but we're going to leave that till next episode. I'd like to conclude today's episode by talking a little bit about what we've learned about Socrates' character so far. And this is important for me because when I started reading Plato, I already had an image of Socrates in my head, kind of a stereotype sketch that I had picked up from cultural references and from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And my idea of Socrates was as a wise old mentor type dropping wisdom on the boys of Athens and helping them to become better men. And when I look at Socrates in this light, his Socratic method, his teaching method seems pretty sweet. It's cooperative. You don't jump in and just tell the student what to think. You help draw out their own ideas. And 
Socrates' ignorance, it's that intellectual modesty that I talked about earlier. And this version of Socrates that I had in my head, it fits really well with the whole innocent martyr of philosophy, morality tale version of the story. And Socrates actually acts like this a lot of the time. A lot of the time, he's a real sweetheart. But there's a whole other side of his character that I found it hard to see because I had this Saint Socrates of philosophy stereotype stuck in my head. There's a darker, meaner side to his personality. Socrates can be somewhat of a jerk. Think of how he describes his philosophical life in the Apology. He didn't say anything about cooperative conversations moving everyone towards a higher truth. He described his philosophical life as a God-given trolling mission to make everyone in town look stupid. And when we start thinking of him in this way, the other things look different too. The ignorance, for example. A lot of people who talked to Socrates, they thought that his so-called ignorance was just a shtick, that he was playing dumb so he could catch people and embarrass them. And the Socratic method also has a dark version. When Socrates talks to Melodus, it's still question and answer. He's still looking for contradictions. But instead of teaching Melodus any deep philosophical truths or moving together towards a better answer, he's purely doing it to make him look like an ass. One of my favorite arguments that he uses against Melodus is when he says that corrupting people makes them worse and that worse people are likely to harm you, so there's never any reason to corrupt someone. And I find this argument hilarious because imagine someone walking into a modern court of law and saying, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecutor has admitted that crime does not pay. But if crime doesn't pay, what possible motive could I have for crime? The argument is kind of logical, and it's funny, but it's not like Socrates is teaching Melodus anything. He's not enlightening the broader audience. He's not even proving his innocence. He's just embarrassing Melodus. And yes, Melodus is his accuser. He's trying to have Socrates killed, so he's probably fair game for a little humiliation. But Socrates does this all the time. Remember, when he starts questioning Melodus, he says he's proceeding in his usual manner. So one of the things I want to leave you with from this episode is this dual nature to Socrates' character. He has these two sides. Saint Socrates of philosophy, the kind and wise mentor, and Socrates, the divinely ordained troll who is arrogant and annoying. And these two sides of his character, they're completely intertwined. You can't tell which one he's being all the time. Sometimes he's one, sometimes the other, sometimes they're mixed. A lot of the time, it sounds like he's trolling, but he's doing it for a higher philosophical purpose. Sometimes he seems like he's being serious and genuine, but actually he's low-key laughing at people. One of the key characteristics of Socrates is that he's ironic. You never really know how much he's kidding. But in any case, in the Apology, at this trial... Socrates is leaning pretty hard into troll mode. And the question that raises is why? It's one thing to go hard on your prosecutor, but Socrates is also kind of hard on the jury. 
He's sarcastic from the beginning. But his conversation with Melodis really brings it out. You remember that argument about educating horses? Where he compares educating boys to educating horses, and he says, well, for this you obviously want a specialist, not just some idiot off the street. And that's fine. I think that's probably true. Teaching is a skill, and some people are better at it than others. But let's put it back into the context of this trial in Athens, which is a participatory democracy. Melodis, he says that the jury and the assembly and the laws and all the citizens of Athens improve young men. And that sounds a bit corny, and like he's sucking up to the audience, and he is. But it's not totally crazy or out of the blue for him to say that. Because in democratic Athens, people actually thought it was an important part of a young man's education to go to the assembly and see how citizens act, what they liked, what they didn't like, how they debate. It was part of the duty of older citizens to try and set a good example and educate the young. It's kind of a patriotic version of a village raising a child. So the guys in the jury... They're citizens of Athens, and they think that they really do this, that they take part in the moral education of the youth. And Socrates is saying, you want to let this mob of randoms educate our youth? I wouldn't trust them with a horse. So Socrates isn't just messing with Melodus, he's insulting the jury. Which raises the question, if you're on trial, and your survival depends to win a jury over to your side, why are you messing with them? Why is Socrates going out of his way to antagonize them? So next episode, we're going to see Socrates get way more cheeky with the audience, and I'm going to try to explain why I think he was doing that. That was Good In Theory for this week. I'd like to thank Clayton Tapp for the opening theme. David Zikovitz for the closing music, Marika Boucher for the beautiful podcast art, and an anonymous theory elf for continued input and support. Also, my sister Justine Mark for help with our website and social. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed our show, please tell a friend about it. If you don't have a friend, or even if you do, I'd also really appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. It's one of the best ways to help new people find out about the show, and I enjoy the attention. When I write and research these podcasts, I find a ton of interesting stuff that just doesn't really fit into the flow of the main episode. And so at the end of the episode, sometimes I share some of those things. And this week, I want to mention one other reason why Socrates' trial is such a great place to start a philosophy podcast. And that's because Socrates' death story is Plato's origin story, and therefore the origin story for the entire Western philosophical tradition. You know in Batman how when little Bruce watches his parents get killed, that starts him on the vigilante road to bat caves, bat cars, and beating up muggers in Gotham's alleys? Well, this is that for Plato. Socrates was Plato's teacher, and Plato was the biggest teacher's pet in the history of philosophy. He was at the trial where Socrates gets convicted, and he took it pretty hard. When Socrates dies, Plato packs up his stuff, he leaves Athens, and he goes on this mission 
to train abroad to become the ultimate philosopher. He goes to Italy and studies math with the Pythagoreans. He goes to Egypt and studies astronomy and religion. And he travels all around the Mediterranean studying and learning. And he comes back after 12 years and he sets up his own philosophy school, which he calls the Academy, which is where we get the word. And during the long journey and at the Academy, Plato is writing these books. And the books are in the form of dialogues and they have Socrates as the main character. And the Apology is probably the second most famous of these books. Anyway, Plato's books become so famous and popular and influential that it's common to say that Western philosophy is just a series of footnotes to Plato, which means that the entire Western philosophical tradition was founded on fanfic that a guy wrote about his teacher. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.